So welcome to the ATS Fellows Podcast, Breathe Easy. Uh, this is Sovic Chatterjee, uh, Pulmonary Critical Care Fellow at Johns Hopkins University and the National Institutes of Health, Critical Care Medicine. Uh, I have the pleasure today of being joined by Jason Poston, who is an Assistant Professor of Medicine and a Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Director at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Uh, so Dr. Poston, thank you so much for joining us today. Sovic, thank you for having me. Um, this is one of our introductory podcasts, but I thought we could start off by you giving us a little bit of background on, you know, sort of where you're from and uh, your current role at the University of Chicago. Yeah, certainly. So um, I'm a Midwesterner and uh, sort of grew up, and, and so after um, heading the Middle Atlantic for uh, some of my undergraduate training, came back, and I've been at the University of Chicago since I started my medical school training and have done all of my training there. And I've worn a number of different hats and had a couple of different uh, twists and turns in my um, career development. Uh, but currently, I'm a medical educator. Um, I've served as the program director for um, two years uh, as the program director and was the associate program director for several years before that. Additionally, I wear several hats um, in the Pritzker School of Medicine uh, Look, with regard to the undergraduate medical uh, community. You know, I think... Again, you know, something that a lot of fellows uh, that I speak with are interested in is sort of how did you end up sort of where you are and did you always know that medical education was where you wanted to be and, and how you wanted to spend your time? Because, you know, it sounds like that's where you spend a majority of your time um, based on the breakdown you kind of told me. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we sort of go through uh, life and training, you you sort of say, hey, I had a good day today. Why, you know, what was it about today that was good? And, you know, for a long time, um, I've had some sense that I wanted to be um, in education or in mentorship as part of my career. I guess, you know, going going way back, I, I always really enjoyed activities where I had the opportunity to educate or to benefit from someone else um, sharing their knowledge or skills or approach with me. Um, you know, I really fell in love, uh, particularly through my medical school training here at the University of Chicago, with just being in a, a culture of curiosity where people... Um, aggressively found uh, problems that they could solve in order to move the envelope forward. Um, I enjoyed the sort of counseling aspect of that. If I was able to to help someone who you know, perhaps was my junior and less experienced than me, to sort of share with them my experience, if that would help them um, in their career development. And all of that, I think, comes together as a sense of an educational community. So, you know, I think when you ask, you know, have you have you always known you wanted to do this and this specific thing? I think, you know, obviously the answer there is is no because this is a culmination of, you know, decades of my activities and figuring out what types of things I liked. Um so it was a little unclear to me exactly what it looked like, um but, you know, throughout all of my um experiences, um I always sort of saw things through an educational lens. So whether I was doing some basic science research which I've done in the past, um, during my clinical training, um, during fellowship, I did a lot of clinical outcomes research in science. Um, I did a chief residency, and all of these things I saw through this lens of, um, you know, this is what's sort of getting me through the day. This is what excites me about coming to work um, and being in that type of environment. And so, you know, this is certainly one way to scratch that itch, and, and I feel really fortunate to have this role and to be supported um, as I am at the University of Chicago. Um, so, you know, did, did I always wanted to know I uh, would be a program director? Um, no, um, but, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, it became evident that perhaps that was a, a natural conclusion or at least a natural step um, in the things that I had valued and the things that had been rewarding for me throughout my training. And, you know, to that end, how, 
Um, on paper, I think people find those sort of small quality improvement projects or interventions in leadership difficult to uh, make into what I've been told is sort of a portable skill, you know, something you can put on your CV that demonstrates what you're capable of. Do you have any specific advice in terms of how how we should go about that? I mean, I think, you know, the ATS is starting to actually be uh, at the forefront of this where, you know, maybe lectures are, are getting up there and you can start getting credit, you know, in addition to just your abstracts during the uh, the yearly conference, other ways to demonstrate what you've you've produced. Do you have specific advice on how we can how we can demonstrate those things? Right. Um that's a that's a great question. And you know, when you're doing things that um, you know, you're sitting there and you're watching your mentors and you know, they're publishing journal articles in um, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine or other prominent journals, or they're, you know, they're giving a talk at ATS, and you say, okay, that's what I need to be doing because that's what I aspire to. Well, that's, you know, typically not available for for a fellow um, in a lot of ways. So everything, you know, that that you do, you want to say, okay, is this a step towards what I want to be? Um, so I think the first thing is to develop a teaching portfolio. Um, so, you know, every lecture that you give, um, you know, again, you're taking opportunities. So when there's a small group in the medical school clinical pathophysiology course and a faculty member says, hey, can you teach this small group learning, um, you know, sort of embrace that, uh, prep for it, make sure that you do it well, because many academic institutions are now, um, you know, trying to acknowledge that work and give people credit for it. Um, and so, you know, I know at our institution, whenever I recruit residents or fellows to sort of assist me in uh, doing some of this instruction, um, we try to get an evaluation so that the students can give them feedback, and then we give, um, you know, we send them a letter to thank them. Save those letters, right? They seem like a, a thank you note. Um, they are they are critically important to sort of um, document uh, your involvement. And again, the the first time that you you know teach a small group session. Um, you know, that is not uh, going to get you hired as a clinician educator, for instance, in an academic center. Uh, but it will lay the groundwork for the lecture that you give the next year. And doing well in that lecture will lay the groundwork for, you know, running a module for another class or taking on a leadership role in a GME program. So, you know, I think that it's important to recognize, yes, you want to take credit and you want to document and um, you know, maintain a list sort of of your teaching portfolio so that you can prove what you've done. But these little things, um, these are what give you opportunity. And if you take these opportunities and you knock them out of the park, you've got your foot in the door. Um, and when you get in your foot in the door, one thing leads to another. Um, eventually, opportunities open up and someone will say, you know what, I saw this, um, you know, this fellow who did a fantastic job. They're enthusiastic. They came well-prepared. Um, you know, let's let's give them a slightly bigger responsibility, um, and particularly in medical education, it's a lot less linear than, for instance, the grantsmanship in basic science. And so, the the opportunity to sort of get involved, you should not only be seized, but you should do it well um, to get your foot in the door, and and hopefully that will um, you know lead to bigger things that are much more substantial and and clearly are. Um, you know, I think really important aspects of a CV and an early career that you can build around. Right. I think that's uh, that's great advice there. You mentioned teachers that have uh, kind of guided you along the way, and you've taken bits and pieces from them. Um, and I think most of us, and particularly you know some of the institutions I'm involved in, which are, are more traditional, when people say mentor, 
uh, almost implied in that is research mentor. Um, and even when you're maybe thinking about education or when I think about education, it's sort of, well, is this person productive in either writing about education or researching how we educate? Um, but do you find that there are differences in what you would consider a research mentor and someone who is more of an educator? And are there different characteristics or qualities rather than, um, you know, maybe just the number of publications we look for or what the, if, you know, if their research fellows are going to start their own labs that, that we should sort of distinguish between these two characters, or do you feel like there's a lot of overlap between those qualities? Yeah, I think uh, obviously those those two people that you've described are are playing a totally different uh, ball game, and um, you know how those things are rewarded. Um, you know, I think educational scholarship um, has come a long way, and I think um, you know it should still be something that uh, medical educators pursue. Um, you know, but at the end of the day. Uh, the, the work that medical educators do is often in educating. It's, um, you know, being there in the classroom. It's, you know, going over um, things with with students, with uh, trainees, with junior um, colleagues. And so, yes, you need to, to seek, um, you know, mentors that will help you in, you know, if you're doing curricular development, if you're studying um, and evaluating a particular um, educational environment, I think there are tools of the trade very similar to the way there are in basic science, and I think it's important that you acquire those because, again, that publication is the currency. Um, but I think in many institutions, um, there is uh, it's the, the trade value is different from institution to institution, but there is a currency to to actually educating um, and to to putting in the work and, and doing the education. And I think that um, that's one of the important differences between the two, um, but you know, when it comes down to it, you know, you're looking to um, enter a relationship with a mentor um, who you want to help provide you with a skill set, um, to give you advice, to give you constructive feedback so that you get better, um, to provide you with opportunities, and then ultimately to advocate for you and your career development. And, and of course, all of the things that I just said in terms of opportunities and advice, um, those are bundled into that. And I think that if you just take that that description, um, I think it applies to either mentorship in medical education uh, or mentorship in a more traditional science uh, standpoint. Um, you know, again, the the academic currency is is different between the two, um, but I think in terms of the person that you're looking for, um, you want someone who is is going to have those characteristics, and I think that is. Um, somewhat irregardless of what you want to do with your with your career, um, you know, with regard to funding, I think you know academic scholarship it is it is great if you can have a mentor that's that's funded. Um, it's just real less realistic to assume that everyone who's going to go into this is going to have um, you know a funded mentor um, who will uh, you know serve as a mentor on your grant uh, as is typically done in basic science. There's just not nearly as much academic, um, you know, as much uh, financing and funding for people that are doing medical education research. So it's it's great. I just think it's less realistic. And so that's you know one thing that I know, you know, my fellows that are that are um, you know really dedicated to a science career and a basic science career. I think that's an important consideration um, because that is one of the the things that people will look for as you start to transition to faculty. Do you have a mentor that's funded that can support you. Um, you know, in, in education, um, it's a little less common, it's a little less realistic to assume that everyone has it. Uh, but aside from that, the, the characteristics of the mentor 
um, in terms of what they give you on an individual level are very, very similar. Yeah, and I really uh, like how you use the term sort of currency in terms of, because, you know, as when you go from residency and you start your clinical time as a fellow, you know, you really just figure, well, I'm, I'm at this institution and my resume looks like what it looks like, uh, but you don't realize that you need um, other things to advance. And I think currency is a nice, um, you know, part of the jargon that as fellows and senior fellows, we need to start understanding and being more familiar with. Right. Um, you know, I think in speaking to that, you mentioned uh, sort of a little bit about the funding climate uh, and what you tell your fellows. Do you do you see large changes sort of forthcoming in how we train our fellows and particularly whether we specifically start training our fellows to go into medical education and if there's resources for that, or, sh- or are we going to, you know, keep people pretty broad? Um, and even if you see changes with regards to the technology and how, uh, you know, these days I think the doctor is not what it was 30 years ago, and a lot of that has to do with the amount of technology, the number of tests, the efficiency required in the hospital. Um, but really, do you see sort of large swings in how we are going to be training our fellows in the future? And obviously, as a as a fellowship director, you know, you're training the pulmonary critical care doctors of the future. So I, I sense you don't have a crystal ball, but you may have some ideas on this. Yeah. Well, I'll take your, your um, you know, you ask a, a couple of questions there, and I'll address first the issue of, you know, how are we training people with regard to, to medical education? You know, I think that a lot of uh, programs recognize that whether you're doing basic science research or translational research or clinical research or medical education or, um, you know, focusing on quality, you know, I think it's 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 important to recognize and acknowledge as a program director and as a sort of an educational community um, that these often involve very different skill sets. And it's on us as program directors and as a community and as organizations like the American Thoracic Society um, to provide opportunity for people to acquire those skill sets. So uh, you, I think you're absolutely right. As um, some of these paths become more crystallized, um, I do think that our training will also, um, and it already has done this, sort of develop some tracks. So whether it's a it's a totally separate program, uh, which I know that, that certain institutions have been able to do, or whether, you know, our institution, I think, is undifferentiated in terms of, you know, the match when people come in. Um, but once they, once our fellows start to differentiate themselves, we will direct them internally within our institution to, um, you know, resources, mentors uh, that are particularly good at what they're interested in, be that quality medical education, clinical research, and, and so on. Um, but I think within any of that, what what stays constant? Um, you know, I think the the sine qua non of any successful career is you have to be an outstanding clinician, and that's one of the things I really um, emphasize to my fellows is that there's a lot of anxiety about you know building the CV and doing you know the teaching stuff and 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 being successful as a researcher. Um, but the thing that is going to sustain you long term, the thing that's going to help you be a good researcher who asks good questions or a good educator who, um, you know, helps trainees uh, provide excellent clinical care or a good um, expert who makes sure that we uh, do outstanding healthcare delivery, um, you have to understand what's going on with your patients and you have to know medicine. So what I would say is, um, you know, that needs to remain a point of emphasis. And I, I talked a little earlier about this pressure to have early differentiation. I need, I think we need to balance that with making sure that um, everybody has a sound, a fundamentally sound skill set 
um, that allows them to be a good doctor um, because everything else stems from that. Now, with regard to um, sort of the second thing is, you know, where is training going? And you mentioned specifically technology. I think, you know, obviously we've benefited uh, tremendously. There have been a lot of opportunities and advances um, due to medical technology. But I think everyone would also admit that there is a cost. Um, and one of my, um, you know, I have a I have a slide presentation that uh, I've given to our residents here um, where I've taken a picture of the workroom and then I've taken a picture of the patient care areas uh, in the hallway and uh, only one of those has any residents in it uh, when mm-hmm. I took those pictures. And, um, you know, sitting in front of a computer in a room uh, far away from your patient uh, has become the norm. Um, and I think it's it's important to recognize that whether it's reviewing a CT scan, um, you know, documenting on an EMR, you know, pulling records from an outside hospital, these are all things that um, have potential benefits, uh, but we need to recognize that every moment we spend um, on these things, there's an opportunity cost as well. Um, patients are still scared. Uh, they're still in need of counseling. And uh, if you go in and talk to them, they still can provide you with a tremendous amount of information, uh, sometimes that, that isn't anywhere on the computer. I think people recognize this uh, intuitively, but I also think there's some science behind this. And I think that this pendulum is is swinging back. So if you know you were to say, um, if you asked that question five years ago, I think with widespread institution of EMRs and some of this technology um, and, you know, everybody uh, deciding they needed a tablet to take care of patients, um, though that would have been the focus if you asked this question five years ago. You know, I think now that pendulum's swinging back, um, there's a, you know, for, for my money, I think we need to uh, remind everyone that there's a lot of bedside assessment that uh, was good 10, 15 years ago and remains good. Um, I think we have widespread availability for ultrasound uh, technology, I think is the best example, that actually takes technology back to the bedside um, as opposed to away from it, which so much of our technology has done. Um, But then, you know, additionally, there's other um, factors in play. So the more complex the medicine, the more complex the decisions, um, I think that requires that we spend even more time, uh, you know, with patients. And I think particularly in the complex world of the ICU or with complex diagnostics and and algorithms and thinking about treating uh, respiratory diseases, um, I think we're going to, I think we need to have that pendulum and I think we need to augment uh, the swing of that pendulum back to um, spending more time with our patients, um, helping them through some very complex decision-making. And again, I think all of that underlies whatever career you have because if you don't understand fundamentally what we're doing here, your ability to to advance that field at the bench uh, in clinical research with regard to quality or from an education standpoint is inherently going to be limited. Yeah, that's very true. I think a lot of times we do forget about the importance of the bedside assessments and uh, also how important, and you know, most of us got into this for being at the bedside and taking care of patients on a very fundamental level. Um, yep. Do you see, is there a core competency competency within pulmonary critical care that you see deteriorating or something that you feel like we really need to spend extra time to assess? You mentioned sort of clinical decision-making, um, also, you know, just basic bedside exam skills. Are there things that, that come to mind where you're a little concerned, you're seeing some of the skills sort of fall off and you'd like there to be a little bit more intervention? Yeah, so I would say I don't, I don't think that there's... Um there's one that's necessarily has fallen off, um, but because others have um, 
and one in particular has sort of hurtled forward, I think it it, it now appears to be a relative weakness. Um, you know, people have medical knowledge at their fingertips at all time, and and I find, I mean, certainly compared to me when I went through training. I think a lot of our trainees, um, you know, they understand medical facts. They have, um, you know, journals uh, pulling up articles um, on the fly in rounds, and I think that has a tremendous um, potential and tremendous benefits. I think people's medical knowledge um, is really outstanding in terms of understanding the the facts and the literature. Um, You know, but because of that and because it's, um, you know, so available and there's so much focus on it, um, you know, you sort of mentioned the, the clinical reasoning aspect of it, and how do you um, integrate that information? Um, you know, we have more randomized controlled trials. We have a lot more literature. Um, how do you make sense of it when, you know, we, we have so much clinical trial that we have multiple trials that disagree with one another? Or we have, um, you know, clinical trials that have been able, because they're multi-center and very well run, to recruit a lot of patients um, but your patient would never be included in that trial. Um, I think we have a lot more data, um, and in some senses, in some instances, I think we're we're tempted to think that um, all of that data applies to the individual patient that about whom we're making decisions. And sometimes that's the case, and sometimes that isn't. So you know, we spend a lot of time, I think, in our program. Um, you know, we have a we have a daily conference where you know, yes, we do CT interpretation, we interpret data, we talk about medical facts, um, but we really try and have a lively discussion about in real time with this specific patient. What is your medical decision making, and how do you integrate your knowledge um, of the literature and how it applies or is limited in this case uh, with your understanding of physiology, with honestly your understanding of um, you know what this patient wants. And so I think really that integrative clinical reasoning um, remains critically important, even if you have all the medical knowledge um, available at your fingertips. I think it it remains um, really the cornerstone of what we're doing, particularly in our career where we have a lot of patients that are um, complex, multimorbid, um, and you know we're making big decisions oftentimes, you know, particularly in the ICU, but also in pulmonary medicine. Um, you know, where they're at a at a pivot point in terms of sometimes their struggle with a chronic disease process. Um and I think that it's it's really, really important that we continue to to push each other um and, and to productively challenge each other um to do that integrative clinical reasoning that's uh, our patients really deserve. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about if you if you wanted to was about the ATS core curriculum. Um sure. And if you want to just uh, tell, you know, all the fellows just a little bit about that, because I think that's something that uh, is a useful resource but may not be as well uh, disseminated amongst the fellows as as we'd like it to be. Yeah, so I've um, been involved in the ATS uh, core curriculum for some years now. Um, A lot of people say, what is it? I think the ATS a couple of years ago um, recognized that there's a tremendous, um, you know, if you go to the international conference, there's a tremendous wealth of, um, sessions, um, but what we we didn't have several years ago was um, a top-down, year-after-year uh, focus on a, a, a curriculum on the breadth of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. Um, and so we instituted that several years ago with a rotating three-year curriculum um, in four different pillars, critical care, 
um, adult pulmonary, pediatric pulmonary medicine, and then sleep medicine. And so every three years, we cycle through the breadth of um, those pillars um, and hopefully provide people with um, you know, really outstanding clinical talks at the international conference um, that will update you on important uh, developments since that particular topic had been, developed, had been presented three years uh, earlier. Uh, we've been lucky to partner with the Annals of the ATS um, to write a concise clinical review um, that goes with the core curriculum. And then likewise, uh, we also craft some uh, evaluation uh, questions, uh, sort of board-style questions, that also uh, make that information eligible for CME and, and maintenance of certification as well. Um, so I think it's a really nice um, clinical review for people that are in practice and obviously our, our junior colleagues uh, in pulmonary and critical care and sleep medicine um, you know, could, could certainly benefit from that. Uh, but one of the things, and, and particularly important for, for fellows and uh, soon-to-be junior faculty to know, is that uh, one of the emphasis of the core curriculum is not just on serving the end user, um, but also providing an opportunity uh, for people um, that are trying to develop careers, particularly in, in um, clinical program development and medical education. And so when we select speakers for the core curriculum, uh, one of our stated goals is to pick, um, you know, as a as a lead for any particular topic, um, someone who is sort of in the earliest portion of their career, maybe approaching uh, mid-career, and then we ask that person to partner with a junior colleague, so a, a you know brand new faculty member or uh, even a fellow, um, to help uh, write those reviews, write the questions, sort of prepare the talk. Uh, we talked about educational currency, and I think this is a is a wonderful opportunity for people to to get involved, um, not just to have the currency, but also to work with a senior educator, um, someone who can take your writing and say, this is good and this isn't, um, and this is how we need to make it better. Um, I think that's a really important exercise um, to teach people you know, how to write educational objectives, how to write a review and a talk based on those objectives and what they're trying to achieve, um, and then you know, put a polish on it so that it's good for the, for the end user. Um, so it's a it's a tremendous amount of work, and we're, I've been really lucky to work with a, a really tremendous um, group of people who who help head up that exercise and, and that program every year. Um, but I've also really been impressed, and I'm very encouraged um, as we recruit uh, junior faculty members and even more junior um, folks to help with that writing, uh, even at the fellow level. I think there's a lot of people that um, are very very skilled and very talented, and it's really been a uh, pleasure through the core curriculum to provide an opportunity for people to, to do that um, and get uh, credit for it and have an audience at a national and international level. Um, so I think that this is, you know, it's one of the things that the um, ATS is doing um, in, a, in an overarching, I think, thread and focus on helping people with early career development. Um, and, you know, it's really exciting to be a part of that, uh, particularly as a program director. You know, I get to see um, you know, I, I spend so much time with fellows, I know how important this type of opportunity is for a fellow um, and a junior faculty member, and it's it's great to be able to provide that. Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity, both to, to read and obviously to participate in. Um, so, Dr. Jason Poston, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, um, Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Director at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Um, and thank you for listening to uh, Breathe Easy, ATS's fellow podcast.